Welcome to Omega Male episode three. I'm your host, Dan McKenzie, and I am super excited to introduce today's guest, the brilliant screenwriter, director, producer, I guess I should just say filmmaker, John Hamburg, the majority of whose films have been massive comedy blockbusters like, oh, Meet the Parents, Zoolander, Meet the Fockers, Along Came Polly, I Love You Man, Little Fockers, Why Him, all amazing films. The guy is a blockbuster factory. Welcome, John, and thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Dan. Happy to be here. Yeah, awesome. So, so yes, your films have been hugely successful, but more to the point of this podcast, I feel like you have, through your work, contributed significantly and positively um, to the cultural shift that this particular podcast is focused on, namely the emergence of a kinder, more evolved, more balanced more sensitive, more dynamic, more nuanced, more collaborative and less dominant, you could say, um, ideal of maleness, right? It's this concept that I've dubbed the Omega male. Um, and what makes me so excited to talk to you about this topic is that your work seems to be characterized by an ongoing exploration, um, both comedically and philosophically, of men grappling with very confusing contradictions about what it means to be a man how we are meant to behave towards one another, how we relate to women, what is societally expected of us, and what we should either embrace or reject with regard to what our parents, our father's generation really, passes down to us. Mm -hmm. And I dare say that most of your primary male protagonists are, in one way or another, kind of floundering a bit mm -hmm. in the throes of that struggle. Is that fair to say? That's, um, yeah, I think that is uh, quite fair to say. Well, great. Let's, so let's dive in right there. I don't intend to go through every single one of your movies in chronological order, but... Um, Just focus on the good ones. <laughs> well, I love them all, frankly, and it was a okay, pleasure to rewatch them. Thank you. Um, but I will start with your first full feature, which was Safe Men. Now, to me, this movie kind of lays the ideological groundwork for many, if not all of your subsequent films, mm. in that you present us with this cinematic world in which literally every single male character is a sensitive, vulnerable, self-reflective human being, right? Sam Rockwell's character has butt implants because he's self-conscious about his body. Yes. Steve Zahn's character offers a, like a studied opinion about what particular raspberry has a fuller flavor this time of year. Um, Paul Giamatti's character calls himself Veal Chop because he thinks that sounds tougher than his actual name. Um, and when the two rival teams of safecrackers uh, finally run into each other, instead of fighting or at least insulting one another as one expects, they they like warmly and effusively congratulate one yes. another. Uh, in the end, even the mob boss and his hitman, um, who's played by Peter Dinklage, turn out to be sensitive guys with hearts of gold. So the pretense of manly dominance behavior is summarily dispensed with over and over again in this film in favor of sincerity and kindness. And I don't think that that had ever been done in a movie before. And that struck me as super innovative. Like, what was your thinking around that? Did you just go in saying, I'm going to create a world in which no man is toxic? Well, I mean, I wish I could say that there was a lot of, you know, conscious thought that went into that decision. But I wrote that movie when I was 24 or 25, and I really was not conscious of a lot of things I think I'm more conscious of now. Um, and, you know, um, Lauren Hennessy, my current producing partner, jokes that there's no villains in John Hamburg movies. Um, 
And I think it's more how I see the world that, you know, obviously there's obvious villains. Of course, the world has has evil people, but most, the vast majority of people, I think, um, are in a gray area, you know, where we're not good, all good or all bad. And I think I just tapped into this sort of there's people in Safe Men, my first movie. That's more like a smaller cult movie. You know, you've alluded to bigger movies, and it's a it's a cult movie. Um, but uh, there's these sort of blustery, you know, wannabe macho characters. There's criminals. There's a Jewish mob boss and his hench henchmen, and they're really putting on an act. And they're not as uh, blustery as they as they want to be. And they they are deep down sensitive, and they care about being liked, and they're insecure. And I think it's just, I wrote it, that's how I saw the world. That's how I felt. Not that I was blustery, but I would you know, witness people in my family who talked a big game and, and deep down were insecure about their place in the world. And I think I was just, you know, as a 25-year-old, just trying to write about that. Um, and you know, I, I remember actually going to therapy for the first time ever when I was about to make that movie. And I actually let the therapist read the script because I was having all these anxieties about making the movie, making my first feature as a fairly young person. And he read it and said, you know, this movie's all about fathers and sons. And that had never occurred to me. Um, you know, now having being much older and having gone through therapy and a lot of, uh, you know, self-analysis, um, I have a lot more of an understanding of things that I was writing about at the time and continue to write about. But back then, it was just all primarily unconscious. And, and I think it almost doesn't matter because you might as well have just been kind of channeling this vision of a world wherein that typical dominant alpha guy behavior that's socially instilled in men is just revealed to be yeah. a kind of flimsy front. And that's powerful. Um, and you have consistently carried this theme with you and explored it in a variety of different humorous contexts. And another thing I think that you first showcased in Safe Men is something that has also become a kind of endless wellspring of funny for you, um, which is that incredibly awkward discomfort that can exist between guys, mostly straight guys, I guess. But I'm talking about those murky gray areas of intimacy, sexuality, yep. self-expression, you know, gender expectation. Um and that seems kind of endemic to interactions between men. And you really exploit that discomfort in a variety of ways. I've already talked about the kind of uh, open vulnerability uh, in safe men, but also sometimes it's just kind of unexpected physical closeness. You know, like when the two protagonists are just tied together face to face. Yeah, they're literally tied together. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or in Why Him, when Keegan-Michael Key's character Gustav is just inches away from Brian Cranston's character adjusting the bidet settings for him as he's sitting on the toilet, right? Yes, I on his uh, the Toto toilet. It's hilarious. And I suppose the most extreme case uh, is in I Love You, Man, when the protagonist, played by Paul Rudd, is yep. gets he gets this totally unexpected tongue kiss <laughs> planted on him by a, a prospective friend whom he didn't realize was gay. That's right. Um, and yet you, you make it very clear, uh, while straight guys do seem generally to be terrified about their own possible inner gayness, yep. um, you specifically don't cater to that. Like when Paul Rudd's character is freely describing this experience to his girlfriend later on, yep. that aspect is conspicuously ignored. And he just talks about how the guy's cigarette breath was gross and <laughs> how disappointed he is that the friend thing didn't work out. Yeah. So sometimes you get laughs from 
just that discomfort of male closeness itself, but other times the humor comes from something that would be incredibly provocative or weird for the average self-homophobic straight guy in real life, um, being almost jarringly no big deal at all in the world of your film. And to me, that also carries a very healing social message for men. Um, But one way or another, there is this goldmine for you of just close physical proximity between dudes being awkward. I think so. I think I'm I'm exploring the kind of awkwardness of male relationships, male friendships. I mean, I love you, man. It takes it head on. You know, that's a movie where I'm. It's not about something else, but I sneak in all this stuff about masculinity. It it is that head on. But yeah, I think I'm just exploring how awkward men are around each other when it comes to being intimate in kind of a friendly way. It's not a, you know, obviously there's a treasure trove of stories of men who are being intimate sexually with other men, but that's not really the terrain I'm exploring. It's more when you're just trying to be friends or trying to have a dynamic with your potential father-in-law or, you know, even like in Zoolander with a a rival, you know, with Derek Zoolander and and Hansel, Ben and, and Owen Wilson. So it's just, I think I grew up, you know, feeling like this is just, it, it's not something, again, that I was super conscious of, but I think I try to observe the culture and and start with how I feel about situations and how the people around me, what, what I observed from them, what I observed from my dad and men of his generation, you know, my friends and their parents. Uh, it, I just tried to put all that in, you know, into these, into these stories. So is your dad more of a, uh, a Fokker or a Burns? Or, or do you feel comfortable talking about that? Like, is your dad more sure. represent sort of the old uh, dominance hierarchy kind of like, hey, suck it up and don't express your emotions? Or did you have a huggy hippie dad? No, who- he, he, he passed away at the kind of March 20. So kind of, you know, towards the beginning of the pandemic. But uh, he was more a bit of a combo platter where he was kind of a, he was a Brooklyn kid, born and raised, and he he became a lawyer, but he was of a generation that didn't really talk about his feelings too much and, you know, wasn't a therapy guy and and this and that. But he was also, in his own way, sensitive and thoughtful. And he, my mom had uh, and still has a career as a radio broadcaster, and he, you know, was totally supportive of that and and loved that her career was in many ways a bigger career than his. He was a lawyer and had a lovely career, but she became, you know, she's in the Broadcasting Hall of Fame and and has had an amazing career as a broadcaster. And that was pretty unusual uh, in those times. So he kind of, on the surface, didn't talk about feelings and this and that, but also was a modern man in ways people may not have expected. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I had I actually had two archetypes. My stepfather was much more the kind of uh, he was German for one. Th- I had, I literally had okay. a German ex military stepfather, so he okay. was like very so more like De Niro in Meet the Parents. Oh yeah, yeah, almost like De Niro in uh, This Boy's Life. <laughs> but that's okay. off. Oh, yeah. That's not your fault. But yeah, like <laughs> he was. But yeah, very much so. I saw a lot of him in in the in even in the comedic uh, version in in. in uh, meet the parents and meet the Fockers. And then my dad was super sensitive guy who was very okay. much uh, good at expressing, you know, love. And so I think I got a good uh, double dose too. But I, I, yeah. I love that, you know, like, and I love you, man. That's, yeah, let's let's go into that one a little bit more. Sure. You know, right off the top, you've got this family scene and, you know, the father, J.K. Simmons, you couldn't have like typecast more like the epitome of manly, right? I mean, this yeah. guy's played some of the most scary, 
abusive kind of he can play an alpha male yeah alpha characters right and he's sitting there and you quickly find out that andy samberg's character is gay and there's this this really perfectly executed moment where jk simmons first thing he says sounds radically homophobic or something like until it's almost immediately placed and sort of hangs there for 10 seconds and then it's placed in context and you realize oh whereas this guy still has a few personality artifacts of being a kind of once homophobic caveman alpha male. Yeah. He's now actually besties with his gay son. And meanwhile, Andy Samberg plays this gay character with zero affectation. Yeah. And, and his side plot is also very kind of sneakily progressive. Namely, his whole MO is to pick up straight guys at the gym. Yeah. And that is, of course, funny at face value. But you're also compelling us to kind of ponder the notion that there may actually be enough straight men open to that kind of thing, that it's literally the gay character's reliable dating pool at the gym. And so like, what does that imply about straight sexuality maybe being a little less absolute than our cultural right. agreement dictates, right? You're just kind of planting these little seeds of thought that challenge traditional absolutist notions of manliness. And so you, along those lines, you've, you've also got Lou Ferrigno, who originated the Hulk role, basically embodying pure masculine violence and rage. And he is actually revealed to be this sweet and gentle guy. Yes. You know, it's a yeah. deliberate contrast that plays both for laughs and message. Um, and this plays into another theme that uh, recurs in a few of your films, which is that when your male characters fail to communicate in healthy ways and instead backslide into playing out the antiquated power struggle of the dominance hierarchy, they invariably come to blows, as they used to say. You know, it happens in Meet the Fockers between the two father characters, played by De Niro and Hoffman. Um, It happens also in Why Him? James Franco's and Brian Cranston's characters get into kind of a Mm -hmm. patriarchal fistfight over the daughter-slash-girlfriend character, played by Zoe Deutsch. In Zoolander, you've got some epic breakdance fighting, of course. <laughs> yeah. But your fight scenes, unlike you know those in typical guy films in which physical violence is basically sexed up and delivered as kind of violence porn, you are basically showcasing the absurdity and ridiculousness of fighting, right? Very much so. Yeah. You know, I mean, Meet the Parents has it with, that's on Stiller's part. He gets so riled and he kind of, become someone he isn't really. And yeah, as you mentioned in Why Him, Cranston's character sort of gets driven to the to the brink of madness and does things that are outside of his true nature. And there is a conscious choice there because I think I've observed, you know, firsthand men fighting and I, the joke is I'm on the sidelines. I'm not doing any of that stuff, but I'm, you know, like in college, I had a roommate who would always pick fights with these football players. He used to write a really, really funny column about the football team. Not a good team. And these football players would get really upset and confront him. And it ended often in physical altercations. And I had never really witnessed that. And, I was and like, those guys is- are big. If I remember football, any oh, yeah. football player, those guys in college, they, their, their arms are like as big as my leg. They're huge. Yeah. And my roommate was normal sized, and but he wasn't afraid to take these these men on. And I just... But it was so ridiculous. I was like, this is how they're trying to settle conflicts by, you know, going at each other physically. And I'd grown up, you know, I didn't experience a lot of that growing up. And I think so when I got to college or started to see these things, I just found it absurd, you know, that 
arguing over something as ridiculous as a, a funny profile in a college newspaper. And so, yeah, I think, you know, that it's by choice that those things ended up in these movies because it's like men putting on these airs, trying to be something that they're not, as opposed to what they should do and what, you know, ends up happening in a lot of these movies is talking it out, being honest, being direct. You know, I've definitely explored that. And I think it's funny because it is so absurd and such a pillar of the male psyche that you have to fight and protect and, and stuff like that. And that to me, obviously there's circumstances where you do need to do that, but it, in everyday life, very rarely is that the way you should solve something. Yeah. Amen. And uh, in Little Fockers, you bring that particular message full circle when all of the tension and mistrust and frustration between Stiller's Greg and De Niro's Mr. Burns culminates in another one of those silly, over-the-top brawls that only serves to hospitalize Burns. And then the real lesson that, that finally emerges from it all is quite clearly expressed by Greg when he looks at his wife and his kids and he says, I have no desire to pretend I am in charge of anything in this house. Right. And you have a a very similarly like awakening feminist conclusion in why him. Um, the whole movie has Franco's character Laird basically desperately vying for the approval of Cranston's character Ned Fleming, mm-hmm. who's himself struggling to figure out whether or not Laird deserves his approval. And when they finally sort of sort their shit out, and Laird. Uh, pops the proverbial question with Ned's blessing, um, the daughter Stephanie, played by Zoe Deutsch, rejects him. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And thereby kind of gently reminding both men and the entire audience that she has equal agency in this matter, right? Despite these old patriarchal rituals. And that's that's powerful. Um, But let's pivot and talk about your muses and influences. To me, um, this term omega male as I'm using it, is meant to name this kind of emergent new type of man who, in contrast to the old alpha male archetype, is emotionally self-aware and self-expressive, is kind, sensitive, comfortable being imperfect uh, or not entirely in control, um, let alone dominant, um, but yet, you know, empowered and totally functional in a new kind of healthier way. And I think we're seeing this type pretty consistently embodied by many of the actors that you have not coincidentally worked with. Paul Rudd, Keegan-Michael Key, Owen Wilson, Ben Stiller, and of course there's uh, there's many others. Yeah. Uh, but thinking back to the kind of prototype omega male uh, actors uh, who that might have been, James Dean comes to my mind, um, particularly his role in Rebel Without a Cause. But, but for you, who are the influences? Um, who are those men... Um, that you might consider predecessors to your characters? Um, I mean, there are archetypes. You know, I think it was more guys in the 70s. Um, You know, it's like at one point, Elliot Gould was one of the biggest movie stars uh, in the world. Um, And he would not, he's a far cry from John Wayne or James Dean. Um, You know, of course, Growing up, Woody Allen, you know, was uh, one of my guys that I that I responded to his movies. You know, obviously, being a neurotic Jewish kid from New York City, that was an easy, uh, you know, there was an easy emotional connection when when my parents first showed me his movies, and you know, and then I started watching them on my own. Um, but you know, because those were like they weren't these big alpha, uh, you know, kind of alpha masculine type of characters. But you know, I think 
then then I just started to there there weren't a million characters like let's say Paul Rudd in I Love You Man or Ben Stiller. We've done a bunch of movies together, right. and it was that was more like combining kind of my this voice that I was developing internally and you know with with their personalities. I mean, it's always been a, you know with those kind of actors a collaboration. They bring a lot of what's on their mind to the project, and and it's kind of this beautiful combination when it works. Yeah, I guess you can see even just in the through lines of characters that certain actors play or just play well, uh, those things can come through. I mean, I definitely see that. You see in, in Ben's kind of neurotic, you know, wanting to be accepted and not wanting to do the wrong yeah. thing, but doing the wrong thing. Or Owen Wilson always seems to have this like laid back, just casual acceptance of the world, this sort of like stonery, like, hey, it's all it's all good. And right. it comes through in so many of, of his characters. And then like the chemistry of that, uh, is yeah, really that's fantastic. A big thing. I, I think a lot of my movies, I mean, I, I joke with people who I work with sometimes. I'm like, I've just been making the same movie over and over again, um, you know, just in different forms uh, because I'm exploring themes that are interesting to me. And a lot of it is sort of one character who's kind of anxious and uncomfortable in the world and overthinks everything and another character who can kind of glide by or glide through life and doesn't seem to have a problem in the world. And the more neurotic, anxious character, that drives them crazy. Um, I mean, that's not an archetype I'm making up. That's been, you know, buddy comedies for years. It's, you know, many years before even The Odd Couple. The Odd Couple is a classic right. example of that. Um, but uh, certainly Ben and Owen in, in Zoolander, you know, or in Meet the Parents where Ben's so anxious and, and uh, you know, Owen just kind of glides in and doesn't seem to have a care in the right. world. You find out that's not exactly the truth. Um, that's the I thing. Even the yeah. guy who's having the smooth ride always, right? You always, you always manage yes. to 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 put you know gray areas in there, and I I like that. Um, yeah, that's the idea. There, yeah. it's even true in your kind of father son dynamics, right? I mean, like if yeah. you on the surface in the Meet the Parents trilogy, right? We're really experiencing it through Ben Stiller's character and De Niro's yes. character is kind of the other, right? He's mm -hmm. the old generation, but they both still learn from each other. You know, ultimately yeah. the uh, De Niro character gets softened up and even Ben Stiller's character has some sense. And I do see your work as not being repetitive, but being like theme oriented. I, I, I really, I, I appreciated yeah. that because I got to just watch it all kind of in sequence. So I oh, got cool. to see these themes rolling and I didn't get bored of them. It was just sort of like seeing the nuances of how you approach things differently through a different story or a different character was kind of mm. uh, very rewarding. And, um, and one of the interesting things that I thought uh, that was new about Why Him, and I wonder if this is a reflection of your age or your time in life. Okay. But whereas in a lot of the earlier movies, it's just very clear who our character is, our generation that like, who's representing our neuroses and our, you know, yeah. versus the other. In Why Him, you you kind of almost split it more evenly. Like if anything, you're experiencing more through Brian Cranston's trip, yeah. you know what I mean? And so they're kind of equals in that way because they're sort of equally dysfunctional. For all his sort of comedic neurosis, you still feel like Ben in the Parents Fokker series is kind of your guy. You know, you're rooting sure. for him. He represents you or the people you know. Whereas in Why Him, both of your lead characters, played by James Franco and Brian Cranston, are by turns beautifully right and egregiously wrong. We don't necessarily favor one. Um, yeah. And I, I think this could be seen as another kind of healthy counter message to the increasingly polarized world that we find ourselves in. But I wonder also if 
maybe some of this balance or ambivalence between the two comes from your own shifting sympathies because you're not the 30-year-old neurotic guy anymore. You're yep. more moving towards the father character, maybe? Yeah, I think why him, and often I should say, you know, these movies, you write them and you don't, you're not fully aware of of why you wrote it, why, you know, what was on your mind um, until years later. So why him, which I co-wrote with my good friend, Ian Helfer, that to me was something of an exploration when I look back on it of like, I was feeling at the time, like, what is my place? I, you know, I started pretty young in this business and was fortunate to um, have some movies that did well when I was pretty young, you know, in my late twenties, early thirties, that's when the Meet the Parents movies started. And, you know, I wrote and directed Along Came Polly when I was about maybe, I don't know, 33, 34. You do it for a while. And then I was like, what's my place in this business. Comedy can be a young person's game. And I, I think I took that project on to explore that. I wasn't fully conscious of it at the time, but I was like, I could see, you know, parts of myself in Laird, the James Franco character, you know, as a young upstart, but, you know, when I was starting out and uh, my personality is nothing like his, but just that, you know, his function. And then Cranston is more old school and he's wrestling with like, what is my place in a world, you know, where successful people keep getting younger and younger. And so that I think looking back on it, that's what sort of interested me about that project and that dynamic. You know, that's what I brought to it personally. I think that was something I was wrestling with. As I suspected. <laughs> Good observation. Yeah. And and as I said, I love that there's no clear villain here. And it sends this very powerful message about life being nuanced, not black and white, yeah. and you you actually don't sacrifice one bit of dramatic tension or comedy in doing so. Um, kudos. But looking forward now, like, what do you have up your sleeve? What next uh, variation on the theme do you have in the works? My new movie that I'm editing right now is called Me Time, and that is uh, another exploration of, of, I would say, male identity and, and gender roles. And it's about a stay-at-home dad Kevin Hart plays a stay-at-home dad whose wife is a very talented architect, and she's struggling with kind of that work-life balance. She's working a lot. You know, she's the breadwinner in the family and struggling with the fact that she feels out of touch with her kids. And uh, Kevin's character has almost, his insecurity has driven him to become, do everything at the school, head of the PTA, drive his kid to you know, he he gave up his music career. So he's driving his kid to practice piano nonstop and and this and that. And he's if he could just relax and not not be so concerned with what other people think of him, he would be fine. But he's not. And it because it's a comedy, he's taken to the extreme and he finds himself with time alone for the first time in ten years. You know, he has got a twelve year old and a and a five year old. So um and he he's uh she takes the kids on uh, on spring break to connect with them and give him some time to, you know, on his own. And he reconnects with his sort of childhood best friend who's taken a totally different path in life and is not married, no kids, and is on a totally different plan. So it's kind of exploring a lot of those themes. It's, I would say, in line with the other movies I've made and uh, and hopefully different in surprising ways as well. That sounds really exciting. It's funny. I was always, as you were describing it, I was like, it's almost the sequel to night school where Kevin, you know, has this character, <laughs> obviously it's not, but I yeah. was thinking about that, uh, that movie and how he, 
you know, there's all this, he he really feels oppressed by the expectations of success. And, you know, and it yeah. turns out he has a learning disability, but like yeah. he's very much in the dominance hierarchy and having to, you know, have status symbols that prove what a man he is. And he's got right. a big fancy car and he won't let his woman, you know, pay the bills. But in, in, the re- in reality, <laughs> like he's dealing with a woman who just happens to be more successful than he is. Yeah. And, and so, and so you did a lot of in- funny exploration of that. And when you say that he hooks up with a friend, that takes me back to I Love You, Man, right, where Paul Rudd's character first meets Jason, Jason Siegel. Siegel's character, and and he's this freewheeling guy full of sort of simple zen of the single guy wisdom. And then he's sort of revealed to have some of his own issues, kind of. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see where this uh, variation on that theme goes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, the goal is, you know, to to try to create these complicated characters, men, women, whoever they, you know, whatever um, they may be, uh, however they may identify, uh, it, they're just complicated and they're, they're not one thing. And, and, you know, they're not good or bad, or they're not, I have life figured out. Even, some of them think they have life figured out, but of course they don't because who, who amongst us d- um, has figured it out. Um, we're all just struggling to make sense of everything. And, and I'm just aiming to write about that. So, you know, I'm writing about what interests me, what what makes me anxious, what do I wish? You know, when you're living a certain life, you always think about another life, I think, or most people. Maybe 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 it's just me and my friends, but I think many people, especially with social media and people posting on Instagram and this and that. I'm not a big social media person, but I have it, you know, and I already right. see what people post and you go, God, I wonder what their life is like. Should I have lived that life? And that, you know, I think those are interesting things that, that we all think about, or certainly I think about. So um, that's what, you know, at least with, with me time, with my new movie, that's kind of something that I'm exploring. Cool. So to me, to me, your characterization of your own work is extraordinarily humble in terms of where your inspirations arise from and this sort of unintended byproduct of your social contribution. But given the context of our time, in the aftermath of a four-year Trump presidency, the Me Too movement, the rise of the alt-right, surely it must occur to you on some level that your work is reaching a lot of people and positively countervailing some of those forces. I I really believe that you are offering a very powerful, healthy picture to humanity, albeit couched in jokes and maybe a little potty humor and so on. But does, does that make you feel pressure to do more along those lines? Has the intensity of the past decade affected you creatively at all? Um, well, first of all, I appreciate you saying that. No, you know, I, um, it's a tricky subject to discuss because um, obviously I live in the world. I read a lot. I see what's going on. I have opinions about a lot of things I see in society. I live like many of us uh, who didn't vote for him through you know, Trump presidency and, and and many, many things that are real issues in society. But I just aim to write, I want people to watch these movies or a TV show, um, see themselves, see their friends, see their parents, see maybe things that they've thought about, but people haven't put up on screen and be entertained. Maybe it connects with them. Maybe it doesn't. That's fine. It is very gratifying when, you know, somebody might come up to me and go, oh, you did that movie that, that, you know, it really connected with me or it made me laugh or I have a friend like that or I'm that person. I've met a lot of people that um, I, you know, since I Love You Man was released, I've met a lot of people that say I'm 
Paul Rudd. I don't have any male friends and it was fun to watch somebody like me. Um, or along came Polly. I, you know, I've definitely had friends, you know, not, excuse me, not friends. People go, you know, I'm like Ben Stiller's character. I'm really risk averse and this and that, you know, um, but I make these movies to entertain people. I don't have any pretensions that I'm, uh, affecting people any more than that, that they're, I'm giving them some entertainment, uh, trying to write things that feel true to me um, in the, you know, in a comedic format that are really just going to make people laugh. But it's, I don't aim to write brainless comedies. Um, Yes, there are physical, there's physical comedy. There's jokes that take place in bathrooms. I never see it as potty humor. I swear I don't. I, I really try to make it smart jokes about things that we experience every day. Um, that we don't talk about often, you know, uncomfortable things. I was that, just channeling the, my mother in that in that comment. By the way, I th- I, oh, I see please. those jokes that way too. Yeah. No, no, no. My my parents and and sister they'd go to my premieres. I mean, my you know, and you'd see a scene where Keegan Michael Key's going into the bathroom to help Brian Cranston with the with the you know automatic toilet, and my mom would turn to my dad and go, "He's your son," and he'd go, "He's your son." You know, and I, <laughs> it's like. I'm just trying. And yet, to write that's one of the funniest things. scenes, right? I mean, that's well, like, yeah. come on, mom. That's I mean, what makes it so. You know, they're edgy. laughing. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. they love it, but they're you know. But I'm trying to write about things that are. And that was before they found out that it was also good for clitoral stimulation. That must have really. Uh, that's, that's that was that we, they we hadn't even revealed that, that about in the, movie. the toilet at that. That's right. right. Yeah, um, I really don't. I don't think I'm changing the world. I don't think I'm changing the way people think about masculinity or anything. I think I just want to. Um, I want to entertain people and and in a way, maybe if they think for a minute, oh, that's if they're in a real situation and they relate back to something I've made or a scene from one of these movies, or you know, people like there was uh the circle of trust in Meet the Parents, and people talk about that phrase now. You know, it's gratifying to write something and you know, and have people uh remember that phrase or use it in their in their everyday life, that kind of thing. But um I, I don't have any pretensions that I'm doing anything uh, more important than really entertaining people with the movies that that work. And not all of them work. Some of them, you know, it's hard to make these movies. Uh, and when they connect with people, it's really, really gratifying. That's what, you know, what, what keeps me going. Well, I believe you believe you're just entertaining people. But to me, it's undeniable that you are also changing the world for the better. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of my favorite Oscar Wilde quotes is, if you want to tell people the truth, make them laugh. Otherwise, they'll kill you. Hmm. Um, and you are, you're reaching an incredibly wide audience with some truly progressive cultural concepts that you sneak in a little bit. And I bet half of your audience might not be interested in those at all if you weren't making them bust a gut at the same time. So that is no small feat in and of itself. Hmm. Um, That said, beyond all of the sociological benefit that I, for one, recognize in your work, uh, above all else, your films are just plain hilarious. And I thoroughly enjoyed laughing my ass off over the past two weeks uh, while revisiting them. So thank you for that, John Hamburg. That means a lot. And thank you so much for your time. You are awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, that's it for episode three featuring John Hamburg. What a cool guy. Thank you, John. Uh, Let's all go out and check out Me Time with Kevin Hart when that comes out. Who knows? I don't know when it's coming out. 
but we know it's going to be funny. Um, one thing that I really wanted to mention to John, but I forgot to, but it, I think is worth ending with, is how perfectly the opening song to Meet the Parents summarizes this conundrum that men have to deal with in terms of their uh, inherited expectations of manliness. Uh, it's a Randy Newman song called A Fool in Love, and some of the first lyrics are, show me a man who's gentle and kind, and I'll show you a loser. Now show me a man who takes what he wants. Oh, how exciting. Follow us by pressing the follow button on the podcast. Please recommend us to other people. Please check out future episodes. And if you'd like to contact me, Dan McKenzie, just drop a line to Omega Mail says O M E G A M A L E S A Y S at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at, at Omega Mail says. I'm not a huge tweeter, Twitter, tweeter, to be honest, but if I get more followers, maybe that'll change.